Welcome to Access EDU, a podcast dedicated to raising awareness of accessibility issues and efforts in higher education. I'm Megan Fogel, and I'm here to help you understand the importance behind accessibility and how it can impact the day-to-day lives of your students, faculty, and staff wherever you're teaching. Today I'm joined by Margaret Price, who is an instructor in the English department and teaches courses in the Disability Studies program. Hi. Hi. How are you? I'm good. Good. So tell me a little bit about your role. I was brought to Ohio State two years ago specifically to direct the Disability Studies program. And my department is English. The program I work in is Rhetoric, Composition, and Literacy. And my job is basically to lead the program in terms of its curriculum both for the undergraduate minor and for the graduate interdisciplinary specialization. And it's also my job to interact with people across the university about disability studies. And that means having a lot of conversations about accessibility, um, both in the theoretical ways that you can talk about accessibility, but I also have lots of conversations about everyday practical issues of accessibility, um, particularly regarding classrooms. So what do your students actually want to know about accessibility? <laughs> Honestly, usually when we first start, very little. Yeah. Uh, when I um, start with my disability studies classes, unless the students have um, taken a class that prepares them to think about accessibility in a critical and creative way, they tend to think of it as something that is a technical add-on. Um, they tend to think of it as something that's probably difficult. Uh, and they tend to think of it as something that one must do in order to help disabled people. Okay. Um, much as one might um, laboriously uh, add a ramp to a building that was accessed only by stairs. But as we keep talking about what it means to actually work with accessibility and writing and digital media, they see that it has all these creative possibilities and it's actually something that everybody works with. Um, Everybody needs access to digital media. It's just that there are certain aspects of it we don't think of as accessibility. Cool. So what do they end up getting excited about? Oh, I found that, um, especially in this last year when I've been experimenting with a new assignment on audio description, uh, students got really excited when they were able to take ownership of the assignment and execute it in their own way. Um, I left the assignment really open. Uh, For one of the pilot projects in one of my classes, I asked students to compose infographics, um, which are visual compositions, um, which are usually uh, making an argument of some kind with diagrams, pictures, charts, and words. Um, So I asked students to compose infographics, and as they were composing these visual pieces, I asked them to work on audio descriptions of those infographics as well. Now, audio descriptions are usually thought of as something that gets added on to visual media for blind people. Like, we have the movie The Hunger Games, and now somebody's going to be talking in the background, like, here's what's happening. But you can also think of audio description as part of the creative process of composing um, a film or making an infographic or interacting with a piece of art. So you can make the description more playful. Um, You can make it long and sort of ornate. You can make it shorter and um, more matter-of-fact. 
And some of that is driven by what's actually needed. Mm -hmm. You know, some audiences don't want to sit around (laughs) for a long flowery description. But some audiences, for example, if they're in a museum and um, the things being described are works of art, they want a lot of background information. They want a lot of text and description. Museums already do that in the form of audio tours. So my students got so excited about um, thinking about who their, their descriptions were for and um, how they were going to design them to be longer, shorter, um, more complicated, less complicated. And one student even got excited about working with pacing in her description. Hmm. Um, she was describing a video she had composed and um, part of the video was uh, really fast and staccato with lots of action and she speeded up her description during that time and then there was another part of the video that was more kind of slow and sedate and she made her description sort of more soothing and slow during that. Incidentally, I had not even realized she had been working at such a high precise level until she pointed it out to me. Oh, wow. Um, Like, there are whole layers in their compositions that um, I might not even be aware of, Mm -hmm. but that they're thinking about critically. That's really cool. So what's something that is an accommodation ends up being a creative exercise as well. Right, exactly. And as we work on those, I also um, really encourage them to think about everything regarding digital media interfaces um, in terms of adaptive technology. Um, So, for example, the fact that a book is all stacked together in one piece, in a sense, is an adaptive technology, because otherwise we would probably lose pages. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's not thought of as a special kind of accommodation. That's just thought of a normal thing that we do with a book. We glue it together. Um, Similarly, a computer screen has the ability to get brighter or dimmer routinely. It's built into virtually every computer screen you can find because that's assumed to be something that the user will routinely need. So if we start thinking of all features of technologies, whether they're print technologies or digital technologies, as adaptive for some reason, then students start to get really excited and interested and to think about things like, well, is this adaptive or could I do this or could I sort of hack this project in the following way? Um, And it just, some of the outcomes can be so exciting. That's really cool. Sounds like we're talking a lot about digital media. Do your students get a chance to learn a little bit about accessibility in an educational space and what that means for teaching and learning? I think they mostly learn about accessibility in educational spaces from the way that we work together in the classroom. Um, I will say that uh, I've learned to dial back the emphasis on digital media a little bit. Sometimes my students come in already a little bit intimidated by just the idea of taking a disability studies class. Mm-hmm. And then when I'm like, you'll be producing an infographic and also a video, mm-hmm. like, it can just be a little much. Yeah. Uh, so I've, I've started um, offering more different options. Like if students want to write papers, they can write papers. Um, you can still do a really interesting multimodal version of a paper because if you need to read it aloud and produce an audio file of your own paper, There are plenty of things to think about critically and creatively in terms of how that is produced. Now, in terms of teaching and learning, um, I do actually have quite a lot of education students, both at the undergraduate and the graduate level. And these tend to be the students who are most interested in things like, how do we get group dynamics to work? For example, if we're holding a discussion in a class of 35 students, what's the best way to get lots of people engaged 
without um, forcing anyone to jump into a conversation in a way that they might not be comfortable with, um, but also not allowing some students to kind of remain out in the cold um, when it might actually have been helpful to call on them or explicitly invite them into the conversation in some way. And interestingly, it's my education students who I find are often um, my first co-conspirators in terms of making the classroom flexible. Um, for example, I'll say something like, let's try sitting in a horseshoe today, uh, or um, let's try a different way of doing that note-taking exercise. And um, I'll find that not only do my education students usually jump right in and flow with it, they often have a lot of knowledge that I don't mm -hmm. um, about good classroom practice. So I learn from them all the time. That's really cool. What do students get out of a really inclusive classroom that's talking about accessibility? Sometimes they get a really profound sense of, um, of cognitive overload. <laughs> like, yeah. we're performing accessibility, we're talking about accessibility, it's a disability studies class. Welcome to uh, my life. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It can get a little intense. Yeah. Um, I think that students also um, tend to come out of that class, I mean, not every single student, but a lot of students come out of these classes where we're working with accessible assignments with a real sense of possibility in terms of how they can bring that back to their home disciplines. In disability studies, um, undergraduate classes, I am likely to have students from the humanities, from occupational therapy, teaching and learning, pre-med, speech and hearing, um, public health, uh, just business. There's a real array of students in the classroom together at one time. And um, students have come back to me and told me that they've applied the lessons that they've learned about accessibility in all kinds of different ways. Um, in the business workplace, of course, in their own classrooms sometimes, but also in ways that I hadn't imagined. For example, um, now I'm working with my occupational therapy clients differently. Mm -hmm. Or uh, now I'm actually doing something different with the papers I'm writing in my classics class. Uh, so one thing I think students really enjoy, that I enjoy too, is um, seeing how they can take some of the principles we play with in disability studies and then proliferate those into other areas to do all kinds of things that I had never thought of. Right. By the end of the course, do you think that they see it as a really marketable skill? Um, Interestingly, I think they often see it as a marketable skill right at the beginning. Okay. Uh, that's one of my shameless pitches when I'm encouraging students to learn things like captioning and audio description and how does a screen reader work. Um, one of the ways that I kind of try to put sugar on it at the beginning is to say this is a marketable skill. You know, this is something you can and should mm -hmm. put on your resume. Um, it's something that employers will recognize as a value add. Um, and I'll kind of deliberately use terms like that to make sure they know, again, this isn't a charity project we're working on. This is something that's going to put you smack in the middle of the 21st century workplace. Right. I think that more often uh, what students sometimes evolve in their perception over the course of the semester in is how creative and um, critically engaging it is. Um, I get... A lot of requests often near the beginning of the semester to tell students how to do it right. You know, is this the right way to caption? Is this the right way to think about building a website? And I'm very frustrating as a teacher because my answers are almost always, it depends. Right. 
And then I add, you know, a 10-minute answer, and then I'm like, sorry. <laughs> Got excited. Yeah. Uh, but so often the answer is, it depends. You have to think about things like audience, purpose, medium. Um, is your audience going to be able to download big images? Um, does your audience want to sit around for a long description of that image on your website? Or are they perhaps just trying to get to the bottom of the page? Um, so over the course of the semester, I think that students often evolve from seeing accessibility as a valuable technical skill um, to realizing just how complicated and creative it is. It's really cool. When it works that way, it's mm -hmm. really fun. Mm -hmm. um, I think sometimes when I'm less successful, students may finish the course thinking that was incredibly overwhelming and I never quite got a handle on it. Um, so I'm always learning from student feedback how to make it less intimidating, more fun. Um, I can sometimes get very excited and pile in a lot of different possibilities. And sometimes the best approach is just keep it really simple. Yeah. There's always opportunities to learn more and explore more on the, the paths that they're truly interested in or that will truly apply to their careers. Right, exactly. And students who want to make their work um, more complicated or more elaborated can do that. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm learning more and more to just set a really kind of gentle baseline, which is how I happen to learn best too, right. um, and then let some students really take off from there, but other students really just dwell at that baseline and get comfortable doing some of this work. Very cool. And both approaches are completely legitimate. It's not like one group is ahead of the other. Um, they're just uh, working with the same assignment differently. Yeah. Awesome. Very cool. And that flexibility is it definitely part of a universally designed classroom. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Um, so what other efforts do you make in your classroom to make it more inclusive? Um, one thing I do from the beginning of the semester is, uh, while I'm giving them the sort of overview of the syllabus and talking about what to expect in the class, is I take some time to talk about the syllabus accessibility statement. Um, so in addition to giving required information like, here's how you would acquire um, documented uh, accommodations, I talk to them about my own access needs, um, and I ask them explicitly to think of our classroom as a place where we are going to be meeting each other's access needs all the time. Um, and I'll often give pretty simple examples about that, often based on whatever's happening with me on that day. Like right now, for example, I'm wearing a walking cast because I recently broke my foot. Um, and that would be a good opportunity for me to say to students, um, I'm probably going to ask other people to move chairs for me. Um, and if you're not up for moving a chair on a particular day, um, I want to invite you to ask someone else, or I want to invite you to notice uh, when someone else might need a hand and just move in and give them a hand. Mm -hmm. um, so don't make me the person who's in charge of everybody's access. Think about each other's access as well. That's really interesting. It starts on the first day of class, but um, an idea like that doesn't stick unless it's really looped back to over and over again over the course of the semester. Um, so if... Uh, for example, students often bring um, service animals in training to disability studies classes because a lot of them are involved with a program that trains service animals. So thinking together about where to situate the animals, where to situate people who can't be near the dogs, um, what to do if the classroom is a little bit crowded. Um, and instead of assuming that that's my problem to solve, to say to my students, um, can you help me figure this out? is um, a great kind of low-key way to, to model that creating a culture of access. 
Awesome. So how do you start to plan a course that you're going to be teaching a semester from now? What do you start to think about to make sure that you're planning the most inclusive and accessible course? The first things I think about are um, usually structural. So I think about what texts am I going to teach? Um, do I have those texts in a variety of formats? Um, so I think a lot about texts. I think about the environment we'll be in, the classroom. And um, I'll check out things like, does the building have an accessible restroom? Right. You know, is the elevator usually working? Yeah. Uh, some elevators at OSU are notorious for not working. Mm -hmm. um, and then I will also uh, try to prepare ahead of time in terms of the assignments that I write. Um, I'm really careful about thinking about assignments that can be translated into a number of different um, ways of approaching them. And again, this is something I really started doing in response to my students' feedback. Um, I realized that I couldn't just design the perfect video assignment and have everybody jump into it with equal enthusiasm. Right. So I need to build assignments that have more um, flexibility and um, more interest in meeting students where they are. Uh, instead of thinking I have to write really long, elaborate assignments with lots of moving parts that everybody has to do the same way. Yeah. Do you have an example of that off the top of your head? Yes, the video assignment. Okay, yeah. <laughs> uh, the first time I assigned students to do a captioned, described video, um, I had just learned video composing myself at the Digital Media and um, Composition Institute, or DMAC, uh, which is run by the Digital Media Studies Program. And I was really hipped on it, and um, I created this very elaborate plan that had students learning Audacity for audio editing, and then learning iMovie for video editing, and then we had storyboarding built in, and feedback, and captioning, and audio description, and the whole assignment was so elaborate, um, it didn't have a lot of room to be flexible. Okay. So um, I ran into a few different issues. One was that um, it was not possible to get um, laptops for all the students that ran iMovie. Ah. Uh, I was offered tablets, but it turned out that the version of iMovie on a tablet is different than the version on a laptop. Um, meanwhile, some students were struggling with Audacity, which I had foolishly thought would be easy for everyone to pick up, because right. it was easy for me to pick up. It's a classic mistake. Mm -hmm. um, and I also just hadn't allowed a lot of wiggle room in case things went wrong, which of course they did. We were moving a little bit slowly than I thought we, had, we were going to move. And so by the time we reached the end of that assignment, um, sadly, I think some of my students felt like their major takeaway was just feeling overwhelmed yeah. the whole time. Um, so I've revised that assignment a few times since then. And um, among the things that I've learned are, um, again, offer a kind of baseline option where students can dwell. Like, just use your phone to do the audio recording. Um, you don't have to use fancy audio software unless that happens to be an interest of yours. Right. Uh, think about composing a video that's um, that only includes still photographs, like a kind of collage, okay. instead of shooting moving video. Um, and just think about, basically, I try to make the bare bones of the assignment very, very simple. Um, another advantage of this is students can do them from various platforms instead right. of having to use iMovie. Yeah. Uh, and then... I build in a lot of extra time, like breathing room. This is a way of being proactive as well as flexible, of assuming we're going to need some breathing room. We're going to need some time 
for people to think more about some step that we all got stuck on. Um, or half the students going half the class might need to do one thing and half might need to do another. Um, and all those things really need the affordance of time. Um, so I've redesigned that assignment so that um, you can do a very simple, beautiful composition with it. You can also do a really complicated composition. Um, but in either case, you'll have plenty of time to reflect on what you're doing. Right. Because what would the learning objective be for that assignment? Most important and central learning objective is think critically about the affordances and limitations of various texts and media while composing them. Awesome. Um, I know that sounds kind of highfalutin, mm -hmm. but basically because I teach um, both disability studies and writing, which are both critical endeavors, the one thing my students have to do, kind of the sine qua non for our classroom is um, think critically and reflectively about what you're doing while you're doing it. Mm -hmm. um, and by thinking critically, I mean things like if you're adhering to kind of a um, common narrative about something or um, something that sort of everybody thinks, do you have the ability to step back and question whether that's true? Um, if you're thinking in binaries, can you break out of those binaries and make things more complicated? Uh, if you're noticing things being left out or things seeming a little bit weird, can you pause and kind of dig into them as a researcher and figure out what your stance on them is? Um, can you listen to other perspectives and integrate them into your own perspective? Uh, those are all kind of smaller uh, objectives under yeah. the broad rubric of what I would call critical thinking. Mm -hmm. So that's the one big thing. I don't actually teach digital media classes. That's one reason why I have the freedom to say, eh, your audio can be crappy. Right. Um, because I don't need their audio to be yeah. beautiful. I need their thinking to be yeah. really great. They're not necessarily digital natives. Or right, exactly. Are these undergraduate students? Um, yeah, these assignments I'm talking about are um, with undergraduate students. I also have a cool assignment I did with a graduate seminar where they did um, very detailed spatial analyses. They mm -hmm. went out and found spaces at OSU um, and analyzed them in terms of their affordances and limitations. So, for example, if it's a hospital lobby, um, what is its size? What is its shape? How easy is it to navigate? How is the signage? What's the light like? Um, even like what's the chemical load? What fragrances are in the space? Um, and each uh, small group of graduate students did a photographic essay and presentation about their findings. Um, so that that's a fairly um, involved assignment that if I did ask undergraduates to do it, I would give them a lot of time. Yeah. Um, and probably a little more hand-holding. Like with my grad students, I was basically like, go, you mm -hmm. know, analyze a space and do something cool. Yeah. Um, and they were quite amazing what they came up with. That's really awesome. Cool. Um, so if you were to come across an instructor that was really reluctant about making their classroom inclusive or thinking about universal design for learning or accessibility, how would you explain that to them? Uh, that's a great question. and It's something that I encounter all the time. Interestingly, not so much here at OSU. Uh, I'm really lucky here to have um, a, a huge support system, including OD, um, that I can refer people to. Like, I don't always have to be the one kind of trying to preach the gospel of um, accessibility is a smart move. Um, but often when I visit other schools, uh, okay. I will either be brought to a school as the person who's supposed to help everyone understand right. why accessibility is important, or somebody will ask about it during a Q&A discussion mm -hmm. because it's a common question. Yeah. 
So when I am talking with an instructor about that, my first question is, are they worried about access in general, or are they worried about a specific situation they're having trouble with? Um, sometimes it'll uh, relate to a particular student they're struggling with, like the accommodation request seemed too hard, or it didn't seem appropriate. Um, and that's something that you or I kind of approach one way, like I kind of try to unpack um, what may have happened to them in the past with accommodation situations or um, where they concerned might happen. Right. Um, and that's more of kind of like an intervention kind of moment. Mm -hmm. Often what I will hear from an instructor who's hesitant about accessibility in their classroom is just that it's going to be time consuming. Um, I pretty much have not met a teacher in my life who's not just really pressed for time. Mm -hmm. uh, and yep. so, yeah, when somebody comes to us with a great new idea, um, all the teachers will be like, yeah, that sounds great. Like, we'd love you to find the extra 10 hours a week for us to implement that. Yeah. Um, so one of my um, common refrains is that accessibility um, does not actually have to take uh, very much extra time. In fact, it's probably something that most teachers are doing already. Mm -hmm. They're just not thinking of it as accessibility. Um, they may be thinking of it as something like um, creating a flipped classroom, or just good pedagogy, um, or engaged pedagogy. Uh, but if you point out some of the moves that teachers are already making um, in terms of accommodating all their students, uh, then it can be sometimes easier for teachers to think about moving out from things they're already doing, such as providing handouts or providing slides um, yeah. or doing things in a particular way um, and then building out from there to start thinking about small steps like screen readable materials or uh, how might you creatively get a video caption without having to sit down and do it yourself. Right. Uh, and so those small moves can often be helpful. I also talk to teachers who are super excited to learn about accessibility but are just completely baffled about where to start. Mm -hmm. And with um, teachers who are in that position, I similarly will try to start with what they are already doing. Um, I have a presentation I have given a couple of times now called Accessibility is Not for Experts. Uh, and that's like something, it. yeah, that's something I really believe, except in a few very specific cases. Uh, there's some cases where you really do need an expert on accessibility. Like, I can't design an accessible building. Um, mm -hmm. Or I can't do really high-level coding. Yeah. Um, but in most cases, if you're talking about just shaping a responsive and accessible classroom, um, that's something that I would argue is done better by an inexperienced teacher who's just excited and paying attention than by a really experienced teacher who maybe has gotten a little bit bored and already thinks they know everything. Okay. Yeah. How did you come to be interested in accessibility and disability studies? Mm -hmm. um, it really happened by happenstance. Uh, I was way back in the mid-90s. Uh, I had my master's degree, and I was kind of hanging around the University of Michigan where I had gotten my master's working as a lecturer. Um, and my job involved uh, staffing hours in the writing center. I would sit um, in the writing center basically all day long and students would come in for tutoring appointments with me. Now, um, this happened during a particular summer, I remember. It probably would have been the summer of 1996. Uh, and because the writing center was pretty quiet, students could sign up for regular appointments, like weekly appointments with whatever tutor they wanted. So I started seeing some students repeatedly and um, again, just by coincidence, 
several of them were disabled. Mm -hmm. um, I was working with a deaf student, a blind student, um, and a couple of students with learning disabilities. And in every case, we were doing the same task. We were sitting together with um, a paper the student was working on and working to make that paper better. But I was amazed to learn how different the methods that we needed to use were. Um, you know, I worked in this way with my deaf student, in that way with my blind student. Mm. Um, my students with learning disabilities gave me lots of cues about ways they did and didn't want to um, talk about revising their paper. And I was really lucky because all these students happened to be um, students who were really ready to say, here's how we should work together. Sure. You know, here's what's yeah. going to work for me. Um, and I just had no idea that the practice of teaching writing in all these different modes and in all these different ways was going to be so much fun. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think I had thought about disability in the classroom much at all before then, but if I had, I probably would have thought like, oh, that sounds like complicated or difficult or just kind of esoteric. Um, and I realized that we were just having so much fun doing all these different things like taking turns reading aloud or um, playing little games or um, these have, again, these happen to be students who are pretty well versed in what they needed. So yeah. they were able to lead me. Um, so after a couple more years as a lecturer, I decided to apply for PhD programs in rhetoric and composition, which includes the teaching of writing. Um, and I explicitly decided I wanted to specialize in disability studies. That's really cool. Yeah, it was, it was a, such an exciting and eye-opening summer. Mm -hmm. I was I was really surprised. So what do you think we are doing well at Ohio State in terms of accessibility and creating an inclusive educational experience? Mm, lots of things. Um, OSU, because Ohio State tends to be really good at this, it's one of the primary reasons I came here. Um, I came here specifically for the job of directing the Disability Studies program. Um, and the program itself was a huge attraction. It's a really well-established program um, it's been here for a couple of decades, I think. Brenda Brueggemann started it in the late 90s, if I'm not mistaken. And um, it now has a really well-established undergraduate minor um, with a huge array of interdisciplinary classes, lots of instructors. Um, we have a graduate interdisciplinary specialization. Um, we do lots of programming where we hold workshops and bring scholars in. Um, and there are also uh, graduate associations um, affiliated with the program. So it's just it's almost like a, like a cool little city that I get to be a part yeah. of. Um, we also have fantastic resources for universal design and accessibility. Like, now I'm preaching to the choir, but mm -hmm. OD is amazing. Um, <laughs> I, I've been at a couple of big schools, and I've been at one little school, and I've never been at a, at a school where I could so reliably um, just lean on um, the Office of Distance Education to do so much in such inventive ways. Um, often, you know, whatever people call the ed tech office can be a little bit narrow in its scope or a little mechanistic in its approaches. Um, so it was really a pleasant surprise to me when I got here and discovered that OD was already doing universal design workshops and had all this rich information on its website, um, was really excited in helping us all understand how to make the learning management system accessible. Um, that is literally unprecedented mm -hmm. in my higher education career to have anyone in the room mention the learning management system except me. Mm -hmm. um, we also have a fantastic ADA coordinator, Scott Listener, um, uh, sort of similar to Odie. He doesn't see his job narrowly. He sees it as really capacious. 
Um, we have an annual conference, Multiple Perspectives. We also have Innovate. Mm -hmm. We also have DMAC, the Digital Media and Composition Institute. Like, in a way, Ohio State is just overflowing with resources. That's awesome. If there was one thing I think OSU could do better, um, it would be to recognize the um, support systems for students as well. So OSU is really good at being excited about and rewarding um, innovation and leading edge forms of design. Um, but it also really needs to, and I should say, we need to pay attention to um, everyday forms of support like the counseling center, um, making sure that students have adequate quiet spaces to go to, that they know exactly who to ask if they're having some random mental health issue, yeah. like they're just really stressed and anxious because they don't have enough money mm -hmm. or their parents both lost their jobs. Right. Um, the counseling center being understaffed often has long waits to assist students and disability services similarly does an amazing job but could really use, I think, much better recognition um, and probably better resources for staffing. Uh, and this is something that when I'm in a position to talk to, say, a dean or a provost or um, anybody who sort of has a, a larger influential position, I'll try to help them remember that it's great to be excited about the innovative projects mm -hmm. um, that we're doing at Disability Studies, but I also want them to really pay attention to the fact that our students just need these baseline levels of support that they can count on all the time. Right. Because um, that's really what makes for a healthy community yeah. that can then think about the creative and fun stuff. Mm -hmm. Right, and that's one of those things that just comes back to, if we think about that, we think about the entire student experience and that is benefiting everyone. Right, exactly. And it's another piece of being proactive instead of reactive. Cool. Thanks to Margaret for joining me today. I'm so excited by the work she's doing. Access EDU was created and produced by employees of The Ohio State University. The views and opinions expressed in this episode are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the policy or position of their employer.